Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. Thinking in broader terms for the first time, not just looking at kind of how, how do we get young people involved in Australia, but thinking more globally and thinking more kind of universally about how do we get everyone involved in, in making a difference. And one of the real barriers I saw was the challenge the social sector has in funding new ideas and in funding new change makers who are coming forth with those ideas in comparison to the commercial startup sector, which is you know relatively good, I think, at, 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 at funding good ideas, even if they come from people that you've never heard of before or from slightly un, unlikely places, and is quite good at funding uh, innovation because they accept the failure that comes with that and there's a, a class of investors known as angel investors who essentially fund experiments to discover if an idea is in fact investable but in the social sector we've only had the equivalent of the VCs and not the, not the equivalent of the angels and so you know that, that VC equivalent class in the social sector is foundations, governments, high net worth individuals, corporate CSR programs and in all cases they very sensibly, you know, individually, they want to fund things they know will work. They want evidence that things will work. Um, you know, social social benefit is too serious to muck around. So let's you know let's focus on the evidence, and that that's fine, provided there's the capacity within the sector overall, within the ecosystem, to also fund things that we don't know will work, because that's where real innovation lies, and that's how we actually discover new things that work, which are then worth funding. I'm very pleased to introduce Tom Dawkins, founder of the Start Some Good crowdfunding platform. The Start Some Good platform is designed specifically for the needs of social change ventures and projects, supporting them and raising the funds they need to transform ideas for good into action and impact. The Start Some Good platform has helped some 800 ventures raise money and has one of the highest success rates in the industry. The Starting Good Virtual Summit brings together some 30 thought leaders and doers from the social enterprise and social change world to share what they know to help you start some good. Guests include two New York Times best-selling authors Clay Shirky and Joel Kahn and the godfather of social entrepreneurship and founder of Ashoka, Bill Drayton. Starting Good Virtual Summit takes place over 11 days from March the 20th to the 31st. You can find out more at startsomegood.com backslash starting good 2017. Thank you very much Tom for taking the time to speak to me today uh, for the podcast and I'm very much looking forward to uh, picking your brains and getting your insights about uh, funding, uh, crowdfunding, uh, impact investing and you know discover uh, the journey you've been on with Start Some Good. Fantastic, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So can you tell me a little bit about the you know, Start Some Good? Uh, you're based in Australia. Um, and tell me, you know, uh, what motivated you to set it up and, and, and give me a, some idea of this, you know, the scale of, of what you do today? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm in Sydney, Australia, but I originally founded it while living in the US, living in San Francisco at the time, with a former colleague uh, who I'd met working at Ashoka. Uh, 
which is you know one of the original organizations promoting social entrepreneurship as a way of creating scalable approaches to change in the world and I think one of the things that I was really influenced by and I was the first social media director there um, and it was the kind of transition Ashoka had undergone from looking from being very focused on these kind of elite social entrepreneurs and individuals um, who became part of the Ashoka Fellowship which is a you know rare and auspicious thing um, to become but thinking more deeply around what about everyone else and how can they get involved in change and so Ashoka's mission and indeed their theory of change shifted towards this vision for an everyone a change maker world and so I think Alex and that, that really resonated with me I'd previously found the three nonprofits all specifically focused on getting young people involved in democratic participation in Australia um, the third of them indeed still going now and that had trended towards kind of an entrepreneurial approach doing such things as opening the first co-working space in Australia so I was really fascinated by how you how you resource and you know kind of what kind of infrastructure is needed for an everyone a change maker world how can we get more people involved in bringing forth their ideas their talents their energy and indeed their money and their assets to to bring about the future that we all want and in doing that work at Ashoka, one of the one of the kind of barriers I really saw to that, and, and I guess thinking in broader terms for the first time, not just looking at kind of how, how do we get young people involved in Australia, but thinking more globally and thinking more kind of universally about how do we get everyone involved in, in making a difference. And one of the real barriers I saw was the challenge the social sector has in funding new ideas and in funding new change makers who are coming forth with those ideas in comparison to the commercial startup sector, which is you know relatively good, I think, at, 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 at funding good ideas, even if they come from people that you've never heard of before or from slightly un, unlikely places, and is quite good at funding uh, innovation because they accept the failure that comes with that. And there's a, a class of investors known as angel investors who essentially fund experiments to discover if an idea is in fact investable. But in the social sector, we've only had the equivalent of the VCs and not the, not the equivalent of the angels. And so, you know, that, that VC equivalent class in the social sector is foundations, governments, high net worth individuals, corporate CSR programs. And in all cases, they very sensibly, you know, individually, they want to fund things they know will work. They want evidence that things will work. Um, you know, social social benefit is too serious to muck around. So let's you know let's focus on the evidence, and that that's fine, provided there's the capacity within the sector overall, within the ecosystem, to also fund things that we don't know will work, because that's where real innovation lies, and that's how we actually discover new things that work, which are then worth funding. Um, and I was thinking a lot about that problem when I guess I got really all of a sudden inspired by kind of Kickstarter blowing up in, in 2009. And I remember I suddenly got a wave of kind of invitations to support projects from my more arts-inclined friends and from the Burning Man community that I was part of. And, and pretty quickly, a bit of a light bulb went off that this is the kind of mechanic that, us, that social entrepreneurs need as well. Just as a lot of artists needed a way to go around the traditional gatekeepers within their industry, whether that was kind of record labels or arts funding bodies or gallery owners, so too did social entrepreneurs need a way to kind of go around the gatekeepers in our industry, foundations, government, and so on, and hopefully inspire a group of supporters who, by kind of contributing smaller amounts each, are prepared to also make riskier bets with those small amounts by kind of diffusing the risk across a, a community of people, i.e. crowdfunding, and got really excited about that, potentially filling that gap. 
for risk tolerant capital that could support innovation in the social sector. Great, great. And so can you tell me a little bit about your scope now? Um, how, how much uh, you, you've raised the number of projects maybe and also a little bit about the geographical uh, origins of, of the different projects? interesting but, but it's slowly the everywhere else is slowly increasing and particularly you know we're, we're these days not to get too technical but we work with stripe and as they're rolling out functionality it's allowing us to accept credit cards and reduce your know, terms of payment um, options we've been credit cards uh, in, for just a, a couple of countries you know in terms of where the, where the projects need to be either us and australia um, and paypal dependent everywhere else which has certain limitations and, right. And thanks to kind of the great work that Stripe's doing, rolling out their system, we're able to we're currently offering offering that in ten and soon to become twenty four. Um, and so that's exciting. That's a reason. You know that that's a that's a that's a much, that's a much stronger offer to the fundraiser to actually then focus on those countries and invite them to use our our platform. Great, great. That sounds very exciting. Um, just uh, technical. Um, is, is the speaker moving? Um, or I'm just picking up a slight kind of rattling that comes and oh, goes. Sorry, that's just me. I have a standing desk. I kind of, I kind of move constantly. Um, right here, that's just me kind of wandering around, leaning on the desk, leaning off it. Sorry, I'll try and be. Okay, it just picks. It, you get an place. echo and things um, there, which is. Um, but no, don't worry. Oh, no, no, don't worry. <laughs> I've become about paranoid about sound <laughs> over time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that sounds very interesting. I I guess a 
to start with, you know, what kinds of projects aren't suitable for uh, your platform, uh, Start Some Good, and maybe crowdfunding generally? What kind of social change projects uh, work well and what kind don't? So in terms of what's suitable from a kind of criteria point of view, we'll take anything that's making a positive impact in the community without distinction or without restriction, I guess, as, as to their legal structure. So we work, work with both for-profit social enterprises, provided they're genuinely profit for purpose, uh, as well as traditional charities and you know local community groups that may not have an incorporated entity at all. You know, a group of local citizens getting together to make something happen and raising some dollars into one of their private accounts to support that. And we're fine with all of that. We just look at, are you making a positive impact? And if so, we would like to support you. That's not the same as being, you know, kind of, the kind of projects that tend to do the best at crowdfunding. Um, those that tend to do the best tend, uh, are those that, so, in, so they're an approach to change that actually involves people and not every approach to change does. Um, and so that is to say, for instance, social enterprises is an approach that involves people because it requires the customer to play a really key role in consuming the, you know, the, the product or service that then creates a social impact or then funds social impact. Um, activist campaigns involve the community in enabling them to succeed, whereas other types of, you know, there's other types of backroom lobbying campaigns, which don't, you know, which is a different kind of approach to bringing about change. And they tend to work best when when it's easy to visualise what the impact's going to be. So if you think about the kind of their, their theory of change, we raise this money and then we do this, that, that money funds these actions and then that creates a change in the world. It's, it's better if that's simpler, essentially. Uh, so to give an example, it's easier to raise funds to um, set up a tutoring program, let's say, for recently arrived refugee children in order to ensure they learn English than to set up a platform that will support those who wish to do that work. The first is direct impact and very simple to understand, and the second is kind of infrastructure and in fact can't make any direct promises about the impact that will then happen because it relies on other people coming along, consuming the content in the right way, you know, following the instructions and then creating change. And so platforms actually don't do very well. Right, that's very interesting. It's very interesting. I just... Indeed, technology doesn't do very well either yes. because it faces a credibility threshold. People think technology, you know, apps and gadgets, and they think of those as... as, as the types of things that are very crowdfundable because a lot of the really big smash hits we've seen, particularly on the commercial platforms, have been technology-oriented. The the Pebble Watch, Smartwatch, and then things like yeah. that are some of the biggest products they've had. But it actually has the lowest success rate on Kickstarter. Only 11% of technology products on Kickstarter succeed, and that's because they face the, the biggest hurdle in convincing all of us that it really is going to come out in the way that we hope that it will. Right. For most of us, we'd rather, like, We'd rather you make the app and then I'll check the app out and decide if I'm going to use it. Yes. And we all know the, the, I think we all these days instinctively have enough sophistication, or many of us, to know there's a huge gap between promise and outcome, particularly in technology. But that's, that's where that gap tends to be greatest. Yes. And as a result of that, most projects fail to kind of sufficiently build a credible bridge um, in people's minds or, or to paint a suffic uh, sufficiently vivid picture. Um, of what what it is that they're going to create. Those that do succeed tend to have an incredible track record. You know, like gaming gaming industry veterans. Yes. Launching yes. Solo, launching individual projects and things like that. 
That's fascinating. I just spoke to a social entrepreneur yesterday who's developing an app to connect different kinds of softwares that social impact organizations work. And he's been talking, he was talking about the tremendous challenges he's had funding this because not only is it not direct impact in the way you say, but it's not even helping one particular group of, you know, organizations, for for example, uh, focusing on 14 to 18 year olds, you know, Africans uh, in education or something like that. It's a, it's, it's, it's another level back and he's finding that really challenging. Um, exactly. It, it turns out very few people actually care about that, you know, because that's an abstraction. We've seen quite a few platforms, you know, like that, this is why fundraising tools are really hard to fundraise for. Yes. No one really, you know, because the pitch always has to be, you know, we're going to help unlock some new money in the sector and that's just going to create a flow of new money into the philanthropic sector, particularly if it's a general thing like that. Yes. And, um, you know, like a new social enterprise shop that gives 50% of profit margin to charity. Anything that gives money to charity, and so that's nice. That's that's cool, and I, you know, I'm really glad you're doing that. But 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 if I'm so inspired as to want to donate, I, I I'll just give it to a charity rather than to give it to someone who's then at some point in the future going to generate funds for charity. Like it doesn't kind of make sense in a way. But if if what I'm really inspired about is the funds to charity, well, I, I actually have a way right now of putting them directly towards that. But more more to the point, perhaps no one really cares about funds to charity or the philanthropic sector writ large people care about like you said you know disadvantaged youth or you know migrants and refugees or climate change or their local community people care about things particularly when it comes to parting them from their money they care about things much more specific and much more personal than the charitable sector yes it's a it's a big gap because it often has the biggest impact in a way um as well um but yes well, yeah, yeah i agree i mean as the founder of a fundraising yeah. platform um I, I i'm a big believer in and a previous founder you know opener of a co-working space and so on. i'm a big believer in the importance of creating infrastructure that supports people to create change that's in fact what i'm you know really focused on and have been for quite a long time but it's not it, it's not the most crowdfundable project and that's fine you know hopefully this is why you know you got to think of philanthropy as not kind of one thing or another it is about finding the right fit for the right project and hoping that the sector overall or the kind of funding ecosystem overall creates pathways that you can kind of go from one to another and that and that those kind of different options that are appropriate at different stages is filled in sufficiently yes that you can get to scale yes um, the general problem we face at the moment is that it's kind of not in many cases There's yes funding for kind of brand new and interesting things and, and crowdfunding is definitely playing a role there and then there continues to be kind of very big chunks of funding that almost entirely goes to very established you know incremental incrementalist approaches and so on and it, it is still very difficult to get across that chasm and that, that's an area we're doing some work with you know institutional funders to try and figure out how to link the kind of innovation that is bubbling up you know more than ever in the social kind of across this very broad thing we would call social entrepreneurship there's an incredible amount of innovation and energy and ideas out there but they are despite all the new tools which certainly help enormously and you know make me wish that we had half of this stuff 15 years ago when I was founding um, my first nonprofit and so on. Um, but there is still a gap there in helping people actually kind of scale these initiatives. Well, absolutely. I've talking, spoken to many social entrepreneurs that, that really have 
found it extremely challenging and there do seem to be so many more impact investors and different kinds of investors but actually for the the riskier projects they don't seem to you know find it easy to to raise money and they're you know they spend so much time and it's such a challenge um so it's uh, it's really important it's the exact same dynamic again is repeating itself in the impact investing sector that, that we had already in the philanthropic sector which is a lack of innovation capital a lack of risk tolerant capital that can allow you to make the progress and gather the data that then proves investability to those less risk tolerant investors. Yes, absolutely. And therein, and therein lies the gap. Absolutely. So, looking more at the social entrepreneurship side, uh, social, um, as you said, you're, you're you know open to all kinds of organisations. What kind of funding should uh, or uh, well do do social entrepreneurs have when they when they come to you, and what's appropriate? Because I guess different kinds of funding is appropriate to different kinds of uh, a, a projects, and I guess b different stages of development. Yeah, exactly. And um, I don't think, to be honest, that the crowdfunding's the best kind of step one. I think it's a good step two. Step one should be kind of your own resources as best you can, but often volunteer resources, making some part, making some piece of progress and evidencing your commitment. Um, kind of another kind of another way of thinking about the, the best crowdfunding projects is, is those that have made, I think, is, is often those that have actually made kind of a decent amount of progress. They've done, they've done stuff and now they've hit either a barrier or more often an opportunity to really step up to a new level of impact, but that's going to cost money they don't have or resources they don't have. And so now is the moment they need that, you know, they need our help. Right. And campaigns that are in that moment do better than just people with an idea that they would like your money for. And we see that all the time. Um, I remember there was a couple of campaigns last year that were strikingly similar at quite a, quite a, quite a similar moment. I think they overlapped even in time. Which was two two guys founding community garden rooftop gardens. I should say rooftop community gardens. Both of those ideas are in Sydney, um, but one of them had the rooftop and the other didn't. And so you can imagine which one of them kind of made the more compelling, more credible pitch. The guy who'd already at least evidenced the ability to create progress, i.e., talk a landlord into it. As a result of having the roof already, he was able to show exactly what he would do with the roof. You know, like with some good old drawings and artist rendering of this is how cool this can look with these funds as so it becomes so much more real and so much more credible than just a guy with a dream, you know, a guy with a vision for a community garden on a roof. What if we give him heaps of money and then no one can talk him, he can't talk anyone into giving him the roof that doesn't create the outcomes that, so that leaves uncertainty in our mind around what's possible. And I think one of the things that, that crowdfunding helps, uh, that helps crowdfunding succeed is, is that people really have a strong sense of what they are making possible. So it kind of ties into that trend towards things like Kiva, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where you lend money to a specific individual. Or even what a lot of aid organisations have been doing for a long time, which is like adopt a child, that, that in some ways it's a lot easier to, to, to kind of get inspired by the particular individual whose life is changing than the abstract notion of helping a nation rise out of poverty. Yes. Um, well, they say... And funding ties yes. into that as well. Well, they say in fundraising that if you're you know right about percentages and numbers, you're not going to get anywhere. Where if you take you know an example of somebody and you know really go into detail in their lives, it's more yeah. more much more uh, telling and 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 more uh, uh, em- emotional. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly, it's a st- it's a story. Right? Yeah, just a set of data or a, yeah, you know, a presentation. It's got to be a story. Story is the you know human technology to inspire emotional responses. 
and it's emotional responses that lead to, to fundraising, particularly in this kind of mode of fundraising. It's yes. a lot like a grant application where there's a committee engaged in the analytical work of balancing proposals against each other and wondering which can have the greater impact. It's a whole lot of people kind of reacting emotionally to the possibility of something. Yes. If they're inspired, if they believe, if they want to be part of the story, in fact. And that's kind of what crowdfunding is uniquely good at. It doesn't just say, you know, make this thing happen over there. It says, come and be part of making it happen. We can't get there without you. Right. So I mean, this, 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 this thermometer won't fill itself. We all have to do that together. We have to join together. Yes. So the dynamic, it's kind of why I hate the phrase crowdfunding or the word yes. crowdfunding, to be honest. Because it's not about crowds at all. It's about community. Yes. It's about building a community. And crowdfunding is has that deeper kind of the game dynamic based into it that makes you feel like you are joining an effort rather than just kind of sending a check. Well, that's very, uh, very interesting you say that because I know that uh, in fundraising generally that people uh, experienced uh, uh, people in this sector say, you know, choose your partners carefully <laughs> um, because, you know, it's quite an intense relationship, an important relationship. What about the relationship with this community? Um, just on the face of it, um, as an outsider, I, I can imagine that could be quite uh, potentially a burden. You know, you've got this big group of people who want to know exactly what's going on and the ups and the downs. And if things haven't quite gone or according to plan, and and so forth can you talk a little bit about that uh i mean i suppose what is what is good management of a community and also what are some of the things to avoid yeah i, I definitely I, de I definitely would encourage people not to think of it as a, a burden but rather an asset um but that's why crowdfunding does suit those projects for whom that asset matters you know for whom the, the community community participation is required for them to succeed right so that's true for like any any sort of event you want people to turn up to. If you're making a film, presumably it's because you want people to watch it. Um, you know, if you're trying to build a movement, you need people to be part of that movement. And if you're founding a social enterprise, you need customers. So that's kind of like saying, are customers a burden to a business? They demand things, they want stuff. They well, yes, but without them, there kind of is no business at all. So it's hard to kind of grapple with even the concept of that as a burden. That's the very foundation, in fact, upon which you have a thing called a business. Yeah, no, I'm just imagining, I'm imagining situations, I'm imagining situations where you're doing something in Africa, you're doing a sanitation project or something, and you need the support. You, I guess this is the distinction, isn't it? And you want the, you know, you, you need some financial support to do that. But actually, the people who are supporting you aren't necessarily going to be involved in that. They're just going to be asking you, and how's it going? As the from as you say that this it, it, projects which have community at the, their heart are clearly ideally suited for this kind of uh, fundraising but I, but I don't think it's just particularly types of projects versus others I, I also think it's an approach to that I mean I would say Charity Water for instance has put community at their heart even though ultimately what they're doing is exactly what you described funding wells and water projects in the developing world um, the, you know the, those, those wells don't dig themselves they cost money and so the fundraising piece is very important and they've they have harnessed people not just as you know an individual you know a once off thanks for the for the funds but very much as a peer to peer recruitment force. Yes. Through a whole lot of clever campaigns through they really pioneered things like birthday giving back before it was oversaturated and now probably slightly played out um, and things like that. They've always been very community oriented. They've always seen the people that they have engaged already as an asset and, and not a burden. Um, and of course, that is you know that just as a mindset. You, you're probably going to do a much better job of cultivating that asset if you see it as such rather than if you have a certain resentment about sending information and so on. And so I would say to your question that transparency is, of course, one of the key the key things that makes people want to stay involved. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean only success. You know, I've certainly observed cases where transparency around challenges has led to probably even a deeper, a, a greater level of support and admiration than existed before because of the courage to share that and the transparency around that. Um, and, and that hasn't deterred people from wanting to continue to support and be part of the journey. Certainly people also love to hear that the thing that they that they chipped into has in fact worked out as intended and made it made a big difference and that's that's really exciting. And in that instance, you know, people love to, to help you take the next step. I've certainly had to turn talk friends previously into, you know, running the second crowdfunding campaign for a project that is in fact succeeding and doing great but now needs additional funds. And for them to have a certain shyness around, oh, but, you know, everyone has chipped in already and, you know, I don't want to just keep going back to the same people. And I'm like, but, but why not? They, they want to be part of what you're doing. Why, why wouldn't you offer the, them the opportunity to continue to be part of it? And the story you're going back with, in, in his case, and hopefully for most people, is one where you've taken their funds, done, done the thing you promised with it, and it's, you know, it's worked. Something really, something really positive has come out of that. And that has unlocked another opportunity to do more or to do something different or to do, you know, and now you've gone back and said, yeah, help me take this next step. That's fantastic. If you're a donor, there's nothing you'd like to hear more than that the thing you helped make happen is really working. And now it's like onwards and upwards. No, that's great, 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 great advice. That's great advice. I guess I've spoken to a lot of social entrepreneurs who tend to be so, you know, hands on in their projects on the ground, you know, really, you know, working hard and struggling to get the work done that this ethos you're talking about this communication, this sharing, which I agree is brilliant. And I can see exactly how that is, you know, a powerful thing to be doing. But sometimes I guess uh, they are a bit involved in the work. And also, so it does take certain communication skills. I mean, I have spoken to yeah. people who are doing brilliant work, but it is quite difficult, really, to 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 you know to clarify what exactly the you know the the impact is, how it works, and in in a simple way. And they're great; they're doing great work, but it's 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 tough. Yeah, and it's not the same skill set necessarily. That's right. Um, you know, it's it, you know, and so it's not. You know, I would certainly, as much as, as enthusiastic as I am about crowdfunding, I would hate it to be the only way we were funding projects because it has certain biases. So does the non-crowding, non-crowdfunding part of the social investment sector. There's no, there's, no such, there's no such thing as an entirely neutral approach to funding stuff. And the very act of funding is to make choices um, around what deserves your funds, what deserves your, your attention. I think that you know it, it does bias towards a certain type of person, and maybe it doesn't suit. Maybe some of these people you're, you're talking about, what would suit them better is developing really deep relationships with a small number of wealthy benefactors who can come with them to the site, and they can shot, you know, they can really um, become part of the, you know, a, a much. It's still a, a type of community building, but yeah. obviously in a much more focused way. And that's you know, that's a lot of a lot of things are funded through that through that type of philanthropy as well. The like, just so long as three or four rich people love you, you can kind of run a foundation indefinitely sometimes you know there's definitely foundations out there whose primary product is a wonderful gala each year that their primary benefactor loves being recognized at yes absolutely that's more, that's more or less the loop they're in they have to put a huge amount of effort into that thing because that's something that's really valued by their funders that's really different as well from the real work so it's absolutely true that you know it doesn't totally it doesn't in all cases correlate i i think that that's why you know once it's come back again you know things that are participatory in terms of like activism are a really good fit if you're going to inspire people to come out you're going to need a certain type of communication skill that that, that does tell a story in an inspiring way uh, if you expect 
PR and media to be something that helps transmit your me- your message, well, you need to get good at that anyway. Crowdfunding is a good way to get people to help share that as well. Uh, if you're a social enterprise, you don't necessarily sympathy you need customers, and crowdfunding is a great way to actually try and pre-sell your product or service, particularly uh, you know to be able to actually sell and then manufacture and therefore to allow entrepreneurs to do that without going enormously into debt, which is often how these things used to get funded, is that because you had to manufacture and then attempt to sell. Um, and that usually required, you know, how, how a lot of social enterprises have traditionally been funded is credit cards. Yes. Um, and that, of course, is, again, a complete bias around people who have the capacity to go into debt or who have family support or, you know, personal networks. They'll pour funds in. So in every, in, for every type of fundraising you can think about, it, it suits some people more than others, and that may feel unfair for people who feel like they're a poor fit for that particular model, but hopefully they'll find something that does feel very natural to them. No, that's great, great advice, and that's one of the things I really wanted to cover is you know where this fits in, <laughs> where where it's appropriate and and where it's less appropriate, and um, uh, and that's really helpful. One or two other tips, maybe. I mean, you've given uh, some great advice there um, for uh, social entrepreneurs who want to succeed. I mean, one of the you know, I, I think kind of one of the one of the key things that people have to think about in, in choosing one platform or another is another thing that may not seem like it's so important on the surface, but I think it's completely critical, and that's all or nothing versus keep what you raise. Um, and they're the two primary models that we see on crowdfunding platforms at the moment, and, and just to be clear, I mean, they're kind of what they sound like, but keep what you raise, any, you know, whatever progress you made towards your goal, even if you don't reach your goal, you can keep those funds, versus all or nothing, which is you set a goal, you have to reach your goal, you're committed to reaching that goal. Any pledges up to that point are conditional on you reaching that goal. Um, they can have very, very different outcomes, again, that suit different types of organizations. Um, but what I see, certainly as we are ourselves, we are an all-or-nothing platform because we were focused on the question. It kind of depends on what you're seeking to solve. A lot of uh, fundraising platforms were founded by people who think the charitable sector just needs more money. And I've got a, a clever idea that I think could just produce more money because more money is a good thing. And they're probably right, probably is a good thing. But it's not, that's not specifically the problem we set out to solve. We were trying to get money to a particular place, which is to say more innovative projects that we think were particularly struggling to fund, get funded in other methods. And if what you care about is supporting innovative, and that is to say unproven stuff, you have to think a lot about how you do risk that. The stuff that we've been talking about in terms of credibility, how do you get people off the fence for something that is relatively new, for which there is less information, less data, and so on. Well, one of the ways you can do that is at least creating a sense of security around the fundraising campaign itself that says, you know, if you're trying to support a project, they'll only actually get your money if they if the project can go ahead. And that's a really different kind of an offer from a, we're keeping your money no matter what. If someone's keeping your money, your money no matter what, it obviously requires a much greater level of trust and pre-existing credibility for that organization. So that's fine if you're the Red Cross, you know, or, or a similarly well-understood and well-respected organization. But if you are trying to do something new, um, you're... People don't know you as well. They don't know the brand you're launching or your, the approach itself is, is new in some way. It, it, it's, a, it's a struggle to get individuals on board. Um, and so the, this, again, tends to split a little bit between charities and social enterprises because one method is oriented around kind of reducing your downside and the other is oriented around maximizing your upside. So if you ask yourself, I want to, what method will ensure that I don't end up on zero? 
Well, then the answer is obvious. Keep what you raise. You probably won't end up on zero. You'll get some dollars, and whatever you get, you get to keep. But if you ask yourself what method will help me reach my goal, the answer is actually equally obvious as soon as you ask the right question, what I think is the right question, and that is all or nothing because it brings all the actual dynamics. It's the real innovation of crowdfunding. You know, crowdfunding is a new word for raising money online, and that's not actually brand new. And in some ways, a new word for gathering together and pooling our funds to make things happen. That's literally thousands of years old. That's the, that's the business model of every traditional foundation, in fact. Uh, what's new about crowdfunding that Kickstarter first figured out is that you can, you can improve people's outcomes by essentially slightly artificially ramping up the, the two things that actually help most for fundraising, and that's need and urgency. This is why we respond so well after a disaster, because there's never greater need and there's never greater urgency. Right? That need is need, you know, the need is needed right now, not just needed in abstract, that's an important thing. It's both, you know, if you're someone who likes to use the getting things done method of project management with the four quadrants, it's urgent and important, not just important. <laughs> yes. um, and so crowdfunding makes your fundraising goals urgent and important. As you get closer to that goal, and particularly if you're a little bit short, obviously the importance of every dollar picks up as you get closer. And as you, as you advance towards your goal, it unlocks ever more money as well. So every new donation means there's more on the line, more money that's hanging there, available if only you could reach this goal, and which will be lost if you don't. Well, that's... So the need is ever increasing. And the urgency is ever increasing as you approach that deadline. And both of those dynamics get lost on people you raise. There's no actual, it's important potentially, but never urgent and important. Money that's already pledged is never lost. Um, and the, the deadline, the goal is aspirational rather than required. Um, and so that has a huge impact on, on outcomes. And that's partly a, a, another answer, another important context to why we have a success phase. We have the right model that actually produces successes. It does mean that 47% get left on nothing, sadly, but it delivers people to their real goals and therefore allows them to get on with the real work they want to do much more reliably than just allowing them to keep 10% of the goal, which doesn't actually get you very far. You're still left with the problem of finding the other 90%. Right, that's fascinating. It's a really important distinction um, and, and very interesting, I think, uh, uh, and, and, and key absolutely key can you talk a little bit about your own experience uh fundraising maybe and how you see the fundraising environment we talked to touch a little bit on this this sense of money for riskier projects and i can see how the the crowdfunding uh you know and, and your organization and uh, start some good works in that way um can you just give me a little bit of a sense of how you see things evolving and, and what you see uh, some of the strengths and weaknesses in terms of funding available for social enterprise today yeah, I think we're still in this, you know, we're, we're certainly still in a very nascent stage of, of real impact investing, you know, in terms of the real hybrid of social and financial outcomes. Um, and part of, I guess, the struggle with that whole notion is that the human brain is actually not very good at combining intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. It tends to oscillate between them, which is why it's often much easier to get pro bono support than low bono. Um, because low, low bono, you know, which is to say asking for heavy discounts, can feel like an insulting offer to a well-paid professional versus asking them to do it for free places it squarely into their extrinsic motivations and they decide whether that feels meaningful to them. And yes, I'll do that because that's, I'm a good person. And so I participate in charity. Um, and in a way, what impact investing is asking people to do is to, is to, is to try and combine those and is to, is to try and value social 
in some way alongside uh, financial. How that's playing out at the moment is it tends to be an additional screen. And this is kind of a key, I guess, debate or tension at the moment is between those who advocate that real impact investment means that the impact is valued in some way. And that allows you to compromise on what would norm on what you would normally want from an investment deal. Right. So maybe you'll, yeah. maybe you'll take you still want you still get a return. It's still an investment, but you accept a lower return, or maybe a lower likelihood of return, i.e., more risk, uh, or a slower pace of return, or something like that. That that the impact is something you use to play with the existing screens that you would apply to a deal. What's actually happening in general is that people are placing it as an extra screen. So they want you to have, you know, they have their general, their, their existing notions of how much do I, what kind, what, you know, what do I consider to be a reasonable return on my money? And they want that plus impact, please. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of one of the, uh, yeah, and this is, you know, it's a, it's a very real conversation. There are good arguments on both sides. Um, I tend to come down on the former side. I certainly know as an entrepreneur, despite having founded a for-profit company, we've made an enormous um, I don't want to say sacrifices because I do think it's you know it's a strategy and it can pay off in the long run as well. But certainly we keep in the very forefront of our minds for every decision, our, our mission and our impact, and we've optimized to achieve that mission. And it's certainly I think made it harder for us financially along the way. But we believe that it's going to come out in the right place as a result of that. But um, but but certainly the decisions to make that probably would have been simpler or produced a strong you know. A more immediate return financially. So I know that that's certainly something that I think about all the time. The balance between we, by definition, I would say you can't be a social enterprise if you're only profit maximizing. You know, you, you might come to those times where you do have to think about the trade-offs, and as you do, you balance them. You're not you're not profit. You know, you, you're not a profit who is only thinking about the social either. You, you balance them together. And I think it, I think investors should do the same. But there are others who say that they shouldn't have to sacrifice. That if we're going to gain, if we're going to shift the greatest amount of money. From things that are harmful to the world to things that are beneficial to the world, it's going to be because we offer them a, a straight up awesome financial deal, and you can certainly see that playing out in a variety of sectors. You know, if you if you're thinking particularly for long term investments, you know, if you want to make a long term investment, let's say with your superannuation, you know, your retirement funds, nothing you you're not thinking about how to get it back in two years, three years, five years, but maybe ten or fifteen. Would you rather invest in a coal fired power station or a solar energy company? You'd probably rather invest in a solar energy company because that's where the market's going. That's also a socially positive choice to make. Um, so there are certainly places I think where that's true, but I do. But but obviously, if there were more investors prepared to play with their criteria in various ways, it, it would help more. It would help more social enterprises raise investment. It would allow more, I think, approaches that can be profitable if only modestly so to scale, while also being very impactful. To scale, um, but those sorts of enterprises uh, are those that struggle somewhat at the moment. Where you know, where the entrepreneur has indeed found a balance where they are not purely profit maximizing, but sadly, uh, just a lot of even the investors that call themselves impact investors are, are still profit maximizing. They just want it to be exclusively through positive social impact ventures, and I still think that's a really good thing. That creates market demand that that moves things in the right direction, absolutely as well. 
But to give you one example, this is something we're thinking a lot about actually and, and, and where we've started to work a lot with investors and founders. And I use investors in the broad sense, people who want to put money in and get impact out and possibly financial as well. But this includes foundations, governments, but also impact investors. Uh, we've tried to start to think not about how crowdfunding, you know, my original, I guess, metaphor when I founded Start Some Good or co-founded, shout out to Alex if you're listening, um, was, was a pathway around you know, I thought of gatekeepers and how do we get around the gatekeepers? How do we climb the wall, dodge them completely, etc. Now I think, in, now the metaphor in my mind is always a bridge too. You know, that chasm that I described is kind of just how I see, you know, is the visual metaphor for the sector in my mind. And I think crowdfunding uh, isn't a way around. It could be a bridge too. Because I know there are a lot of in, in investors out there and foundations who do want to support more innovative stuff. But it it is, it is genuinely harder to do so. It's harder to find stuff that doesn't yet fully exist or hasn't yet kind of fully emerged. It's harder to evaluate it when it's at an earlier stage. How do you pick one idea for another, particularly you know, in diverse sectors and, and complicated issues that you may not be an expert on, um, at? Uh, in so, when it comes to social enterprise, how do you pick which products are going to succeed absent real tests in the marketplace? And so we, these days we're really exploring a model where we think that crowdfunding can, can, be, can be the validating tool that then unlocks access to that additional capital. And a really specific example of that is an initiative we've just launched with uh, Impact Debt Investor in Australia, the Social Enterprise Finance Australia. And their mission is to lend money such that social enterprises can scale and make a bigger difference. But their, their challenge is that their, tradition, that their, their model for assessing uh, lendability, investability has been quite traditional. They really want you to have some sort of meaningful piece of collateral. If you own a building, that would be really great. <laughs> yes. um, now, if you own a building, you can just you can just borrow money from the bank. You yes. know, by that point, you're so creditworthy that their, their existence doesn't make the impact it should. They are indeed lending money, and they're lending money to purely social enterprises. But to the same social enterprises that could raise money from a traditional bank. And in some ways, that's the social impact sector writ large. By the time you qualify to an impact investor these days, you're so investable that you would qualify for most investors. And some say that's a good thing. And I say impact investors should stand out a little bit and take bigger risks. And so CIFA becoming aware, you know, thinking about this and aware of this, we thought, well, how can we de-risk deals that are non-secured? And so now we've launched a program whereby they will make conditional offers of $50,000 and up in a, in a debt investment. And then require that in order to access that or to realize that loan, you have to raise $25,000 on our platform. You know, so that, that then becomes a very meaningful test that allows you to differentiate between different ideas and to say, well, we like the sound of it, but now go out there and prove it a bit. Go and, you know, go and get a couple of hundred people to, to pay in and to, pre, to pre-purchase what you're offering. And then we'll put in these additional funds to really ramp that up. And that makes it so much more worthwhile for the entrepreneur as well, because crowdfunding certainly involves a lot of effort, as you often hear. You know, it's, it can be a grueling process. A lot of value comes out of it as well, but it can be very exhausting. And of course, here you get kind of three x benefit from your your efforts. You raise twenty five, and you end up with seventy five to help you scale. So we're really excited about those sorts of models, and that's really what we're pursuing at the moment: is is to become not the way around, but the linkage to that next step. On the, on the social financing ladder. It's fascinating, Tom. It's been uh, really uh, rich, uh, insightful, um, and thank you for uh, sharing your uh, insights, your experience, 
and I wish you the very best of success with Start Some Good uh, into the future and uh, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investing Programme aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs to help build more resilient and financially stronger social impact businesses. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org.